I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Andy Durgan joins us fresh from the streets of Barcelona to explain the crisis rocking Spain and Catalonia. Within days of the historic vote for Catalan independence, the Spanish central government declared the vote illegal and has responded with fury, jailing the Catalan political leaders, seriously attacking democracy. What is behind Rajoy's blunt force reaction and who are the forces supporting independence? How has the left responded? Is this a case of resurgent nationalism or a popular reaction to the authoritarian, repressive and austerity policies of the Rajoy government? We'll get Andy Durgan's take and his up-to-the-minute report. We also talk on Jacobin Radio today to freelance journalist Michael Sainato, whose blow-by-blow account of the internal crises of the Democratic Party has become essential reading. We asked Michael to lay out the steps the Democrats have taken since the election to crush and marginalize Bernie Sanders within the party, and we get his take on the likely effects on the party's political hopes for 2018 and 2020, as well as on the future of the Sanders movement itself. All this on Jacobin Radio, coming up. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. I'm very pleased to have Andy Durgan with us. He's an historian who lives in Barcelona and lectures in the School of Modern Languages at the university there. He has a book in English called The Spanish Civil War. It was published in 2007 by Palgrave. And he was an historical advisor for Ken Loach's film Land and Freedom. You're joining us, Andy Durgan, fresh from the streets today, where there was a kind of pots and pans demonstration. I've invited him to be with us to explain the crisis that's rocking Spain and Catalonia. Within days of the historic vote for Catalan independence, the Spanish central government declared the vote illegal and responded with fury, really surprising the world, I should think, jailing the Catalan political leaders, responding with repressive moves against the population, and seriously attacking democracy. The Catalan leader Puigdemont is likening it to a coup, and Barcelona's mayor Aracolau described it as a black day for Catalonia, saying a government democratically elected at the ballot box is in jail. And the crisis doesn't seem to be confined to Spain. Scotland, Ireland, regions of France, and others are all watching. So I've brought Andy Durgan to kind of lay it out and explain to us what's behind Rajoy's blunt force reaction and who are the forces supporting independence? How has the left responded from Podemos to other left forces? Is this a case of resurgent nationalism or a popular reaction to the authoritarian policies? Well, we have all of those questions before us. Andy Durgan, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Okay. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very pleased to have you for the first time. I've long been an admirer of your writing. So All let's right, thank you. And so let's just start with your assessment of this crisis and maybe going into who the forces are supporting independence and why. I mean, the crisis is like, in a sense, a revenge of history, in that the national conflicts inside the Spanish state were never solved coming out of Francoism with the transition from dictatorship and have been festering in the background. The um, recent upsurge in favor of independence in Catalonia has diverse roots. In part, it was to do with an attempt to improve the statute of autonomy. That's the regional autonomy that the different regions have for Catalonia in 2006. 
after a lot of pressure by the Catalan nationalists, the Socialist Party government agreed to introduce a new statute which would have given the Catalan government more control over the, its economy and so on. This was then rejected by the Tribunal Court from an initiative by the Partido Popular, the Conservative Party, and the rejection of this statute radicalized the movement and pushed the more moderate nationalists towards an independence position. But you have to see this in the context also of the economic crisis, which hit Spain very hard, and the rise of the indignados. There's a general situation of rebellion and rejection of the Spanish government. And in that context, the independence movement doubled its support effectively in the Catalan population, becoming an absolutely massive force with massive demonstrations. The Catalan National Day demonstration for five years running has been a million people. So the forces behind favour independence is a cross-class mm. alliance effectively. However, the actual political programme or the political desires or the aims of the movement, I would argue, is progressive in the sense that uh, it talks about social justice, about getting rid of austerity, the idea being that uh, the Catalan Republic would break with the Spanish monarchy and form a more democratic state. This is their aim and their idea, and it's certainly the, the feeling amongst the hundreds of thousands of people that support the movement. So it is very much a hybrid movement, but um, pushing in a very progressive direction a direction which has been confirmed in the last few days, as your introduction pointed well, out, the repression. Well, let me just then circle yep. back for a second, because I mentioned in the intro that you just got back from an action today. Maybe you could start by saying what happened today. Who were the people who were out in the streets? What were they doing? Right. Well, today, I mean, because of the jailing of the um, eight members of the Catalan government yesterday, there was firstly fairly spontaneous reaction last night. People started blocking roads. This continued uh, sporadically today, and particularly students all over Catalonia came out and blocked roads and demonstrated. And there were rallies tonight in front of the town halls, in front of the city councils and village councils all over Catalonia, so probably involving tens if not hundreds of thousands of people. These would have been massive and everywhere. And then at 10 o'clock, like last night, and it has been actually more or less continuously since the 1st of October when we had the referendum, there was a casserolada with people hitting saucepans for 20 minutes, which makes a tremendous impact. When you kill <laughs> a lot of city. noise, too. Yeah, making a lot of noise. So the actual people doing this, the movement is a middle-class, working-class movement. It's a mixture because it's a national movement. It's not a workers' movement on its own. And it's a section of the working class, because the Catalan-speaking working class. And I would say what you could call the lower middle classes and so on. It's quite clear that the bourgeoisie, for example, the Catalan bourgeoisie, are not interested in independence. This has been the case for a while, and to make it very clear with the boycott organized by big companies of uh, Catalonia. A lot of companies, up to a 1,000 companies, have moved out of Catalonia and moved their headquarters to elsewhere in Spain uh, in a political attempt to pressurize the Catalan government. So it's a, a popular movement uh, in that sense. I don't know Very if it, mixed. It, yeah, is it mm. somewhat like what you saw for Scottish independence too? Which yeah, I think it's similar. Uh, you know, it's cross-class, but it, it's not a, uh, a movement of the bourgeoisie or the rich. So, uh, I mean, the people's aspirations are, I mean, expressed very much in the politics of the Catalan National Assembly, which is the umbrella organization which has been defending independence now for five, six years. I mean, their policy, they defend ethnic diversity, social justice and so on. I mean, it's um, 
the orientation is towards the idea. Maybe, you know, they may be rather utopian in this, that, that Catalonia can be a better place than the rest of Spain. I think that's very much a driving force. Plus, you, you know, increasing radicalization because of the Spanish government's reaction. Well, let's, let's go there. Yeah. First, were you surprised? I certainly was surprised by the brunt force repressive reaction of Rajoy. My first reaction was, what, is he being stupid? Because what he's yeah. doing is fueling Catalan nationalism when... For what it seemed, we're very far away in California, but it seemed to be a middle class movement, not something that someone, perhaps like you and I, are very wary of nationalism, thinking it's not really a solution. But here it's progressive forces, as you mentioned in Scotland as well, the same kind of forces that don't see any future in the austerity politics of the central government. But yet the central government just wants to, seems to want to chop them off. So I said at the beginning, in the historic context, that you know, the transition was a deal between the remnants of what was left of the Frankish regime and the moderate section of the opposition. And that deal included the defense of the unity of the Spanish state at all cost. The demands of national minorities had never been met inside the Spanish state. I mean, in a sense, they'd begun to be met in the, during the Second Republic before the Civil War in the 30s, but this had been unresolved and had been there in the background. In the meantime, since the late 70s until six, seven years ago, the moderate nationalists were quite happy to do deals with whoever was in power in Madrid to get certain concessions. But these concessions were not considered enough in the context of the crisis and general uh, frustration with uh, the lack of control over, especially the economic side, because Catalonia was giving far more money to Madrid than it was getting back, and the feeling that the Catalan government should decide how this money is used. So that is very simply how it happens. But there's always been a very popular movement, the Catalan national movement. Firstly, you have to consider course that all nationalism not the same the nationalism of the national minorities of those states is very different from the nationalism of you know say the united states or britain secondly in catalonia it's always had this mass base even in the 30s the members of the cnt who would be the backbone of the revolution in 36 a lot of them voted for this get republic of the left nationalist party there was an overlap there so it's always had this popular element in it, and it's no question, as was shown on the 3rd of October, when you had the biggest general strike in Catalonia since right. Francoism, that an important sector of the working class identifies with the rights of Catalonia. And you um, could say, so, because there were strikes and mobilization for the referendum as well, and so as you're saying, Andy Durgan, this isn't simply middle class, it's middle class supported by working class or working yeah, class. Yeah, it's a mix, class. it's an interclass movement. You know, the word popular, it doesn't really have the same meaning in English as it does in Spanish. You know, but, but maybe I could just get you to, like, address this because, yeah. you know, people around the world are certainly aware of Basque separatism. Um, yeah. And how is this different? Is it different? And what are the sort of politics in the sense of what is it that people think that independence will do for them? Well, it's not so different in the sense that because the Basque also have been kept in, you know, much the straitjacket of the Spanish state. Of course, there's a difference in the specific makeup, because in the Basque country, there was a um, terrorist organization, ETA, of course, who were active for nearly 40 years. So that makes it considerably different in that sense. But in terms of what people think, uh, this is hard to directly answer, because, of course, the different sectors perhaps have different ideas. I think... In the general sense, people think that uh, independent Catalonia would be uh, a more progressive country, be more democratic. They think that, um, you know, they could, instead of bailing out banks, they could spend the money on hospitals and so on. I think there's a general 
feeling that Catalonia would improve the lives of the majority of people and so on, there's also to be considered the internationalist mm-hmm. attitude of the Catalans, far more so, I mean, we're generalizing here, but far more so than the Spanish. The largest demonstration in Europe in favor of Syrian refugees was here in Barcelona with 130,000 people demonstrated about six months ago. I mean, on that demonstration, there's a lot of independence flags because a lot of the defenders of independence consider the independence of Catalonia, as I've said before, as a progressive and internationalist move. They don't see it as building more borders. If anything, they see it as breaking down borders and having this change in their lives. This is a very broad generalization, I suppect, the more moderate elements of the Catalan national movement would perhaps have a less left-wing interpretation of this. But I think certainly if you go to the demonstrations, the atmosphere in the demonstrations is a generally leftish orientation, although not all the left, of course, agrees with this, with the demand of independence. But that, I'd say, was the general thrust of it. It's not that there's a sort of a stereotypical idea, you know, the Catalans are rich and it's just to do they want their money and so on and so forth. This is very common in the rest of Spain and, uh, against the Catalans, but it's nowhere near as straightforward as that because, as I said before, the Catalan National Assembly uh, talks very much in terms of social justice, not in terms of people spending the money on having a new swimming pool or something. So, Well, let me um, ask you another question, Andy Durgan, yeah. that comes out of that, because yeah. what you're describing, of course, people do know that Catalonia is a successful, I guess, what, part of Spain and accounts for, what is it, 20 percent of the economy, yeah, something 20%. like So given all of that, I began by asking whether or not you were surprised by Rajoy's authoritarianism, and is the mm-hmm. movement anti-austerity, anti-authoritarian, or anti-Spain? Is there a difference there? No, it's anti-authoritarian and anti-austerity. It's not. I mean, the movement makes a big point of. I mean, and against the Spanish state, not against the Spanish people. The CUP, the far left organization, the anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, independence organization always makes a point of having speakers from the rest of Spain on their platform as they I mean the last meeting they organized just before the referendum two of the speakers were Muslims wearing a hijab Catalans and so on they make a point of the diversity and internationalism so this is not understood of course or even known about because the Spanish media of course doesn't talk about these things but this is very much the feeling and also the more mainstream Catalan nationalists always make a point of of saying you know they're not against the Spanish people and so on and they try and cultivate links with anybody who prepared to be sympathetic to them so I think this is a false stereotype of Catalan nationalism that it's also against the Spanish it's just not the case so well on the other hand I would say Spanish nationalism is very much directed against the Catalans. That's so interesting. Uh, Let me ask you, just while you go into this, to maybe add on to it, the role of the left parties. You've mentioned the CUP, which is the radical yeah. left in yeah. uh, Catalan, but Podemos, which is this force that grew out of the Indignados and the big movement coming <laughs> out of the Arab Spring, has denounced Rajoy's authoritarianism but refuses to recognize the referendum. Have they played the role that you would have expected of a left-wing party? Well, they played the role I'd expected of them, but perhaps not what would have liked them to play. <laughs> okay. I mean, I should point out that I'm sympathetic with the CUP. But Podemos, in the rest of the Spanish state, it's a different here in Catalonia, but in the rest of the Spanish state are very much caught, I think, in this trap that there is a deep anti-Catalan feeling in a popular level in the rest of Spain which is 
deeply reactionary, but there's something that's been there, never been combated by the by traditional left, either the socialists or the communists. And of course, now with the present crisis, they're faced with this sort of mass, large-scale antagonism towards Catalonia, and I think they're terrified of losing votes. The position of Podemos is far better than the rest of the Spanish political parties, or particularly the Socialist Party, in the sense they do defend the right of the Catalans to be able to vote. But what they insist is that the vote should be a legal, negotiated referendum between the Catalan government and the Spanish government. The problem with that is, I mean, personally, I can't see how this is going to happen when there's such intransigence on the behalf of the main Spanish parties towards the Catalan national rights. But that is their former position, which leads them to a position of sort of like equal distance between both the direct rule imposed by the Spanish government and the unilateral declaration of independence by the Catalan parliament a week ago. So this puts them in a position which I think is mistaken, because the two can't be equated. On the other hand, the Catalan Podemos, or at least its leader, Abano Dante Fascin, who's just today been sacked by the Madrid leadership of Podemos, has been wow. very um, principled in his defense of the Catalan's rights to vote and of the declaration of Catalan Republic. And for that reason, he's been thrown out of the leadership of Podemos today in an extremely undemocratic move, it seems to me, a party which prides itself on direct democracy and so on. So... I think they have a very ambivalent role in this, although they're certainly obviously outraged at the um, people being put into prison and the political leaders and so on. But if they can't differentiate between the two, it makes it very hard, I think, for them to seriously mount opposition to uh, the PP government. This really leads to, I guess, what might have to be our final question. What you're describing is really the way that the Catalan independence movement has exposed all of the fault lines in Spain itself yeah. and in Spanish democracy. Clearly, Spain is acting in an anti-democratic manner. Catalonia has been described as the failure of Spain. And I guess I want to ask you if you see that as the case and what you think is going to happen next. Right. Well, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think it has exposed this. And as I said at the beginning, it's like the revenge of history, that mm -hmm. the uncompleted transition, the weakness of Spanish democracy has been exposed here, and the fact that the imposition of a united Spain, which was only really ever imposed by Franco, I mean, Spain was always a very fragmented state. Uh, it was only in the Franco there's an attempt quite artificially from above to impose the idea of one Spain, that the main political forces never dealt with this, in fact, have brought into this and sort of ignored the existence of mass movements for national rights, particularly in the Basque country and Catalonia, but there's also other parts of Spain which have national demands. And this has now come back to hit them in the face, basically, and they can't really cope with this because they've never taken it on and they're committed to the idea of the Spanish state. That's on the one hand, so yes, I totally agree, it's actually exposed all the fault lines in Spanish democracy. What's going to happen is very hard to say. Things don't look good. In the short term, I think there's going to be more repression There'll be more arrests and more people in jail. I think under the direct rule, waiting for them any moment to intervene directly into Catalan television, Catalan radio stations, mm. which give coverage to the independence movement. And they've already taken over the whole running of the Catalan government, the, all the economics of the Catalan government now run from Madrid. The Catalan police has been put under direct control of Madrid. So in the short term... Uh, things are going to get more conflictive, 
But this could have an extremely negative effect on the Spanish government, as you said yourself. You know, it's amazing, really, what Rajoy's doing. Because yeah. it's not just the Catalan economy is going to suffer, and the whole of the Spanish economy is going to suffer. As you pointed out, 20% of the GDP is actually produced here in Catalonia. 25% of Spain's exports come from Catalonia. So it's for the sake of this political intransigence, I would have thought we're going to enter in a period of great instability, which in the turn could go on into Europe. Uh, again, the European Union are being very passive about this, supporting the Spanish government, refusing to criticize them. And I think they're going to see very soon that it's going to have very negative effects. In terms of the movement, the movement for independence is extremely strong. I mean, we're talking about two million or so people who have been mobilized again and again. The referendum on the 1st of October showed a massive level of self-organization, hundreds of thousands of people involved in protecting the electoral colleges. The general strike of the thirds I mentioned before was enormous. So in the short term, I think we're going to see much more conflict and instability. Whether the more moderate sections of the Catalan uh, national movement, independence movement, hope that this will finally force the Spanish government into negotiating some sort of deal with them, I, this would seem a reasonable thing to imagine from their point of view, it could happen, but it's hard to see at the moment how that's going to happen. So it's very difficult to know how this will end. Andy Durgan, this has been fabulous. Almost everything I wanted to hear, but there's so much more, so I want to invite you back. Let's continue the discussion as the crisis unfolds. Andy Durgan is an historian. He lives there. He lectures at the University of Barcelona. His book in English is called The Spanish Civil War, published in 2007. And Andy is a member, as he said, of the organization COOP, which stands for what? Catalan Unity? No, it stands for the Popular Unity Candidature. Oh, much better. Much better. Okay. I want to thank you so much for being with us on Jacobin Radio, Andy Durgan. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to be talking to Michael Sinato on the Democratic Party and the continued support for Bernie Sanders politics and I guess also on the Democratic Party's reaction to it. Michael Sinato is a freelance journalist and a columnist. He's been following this from the get-go. So we'll get his take on the battle between the neoliberal leadership in the DNC and the Sanders forces that they are fighting and that uh, fight has continued unabated. And Michael Sinato lives in Gainesville, Florida. He tweets at at M-S-A-I-N-A-T-1. <laughs> That's Michael Sinat 1. And uh, his work appears just about everywhere. But you could try The Observer, The Guardian, Miami Herald, Counterpunch, Truth Out, Alternate, Common Dreams. That's enough. <laughs> Welcome, Michael, to the show. Thanks for having me on, Susie. Thanks. So a couple of days ago, we got a kind of crowning piece of evidence on the official Democratic Party and Bernie Sanders and the party's systematic attempt from the time he began his campaign to secure the nomination for Hillary Clinton and to be marginalized. And Donna Brazil, the longtime DP operative, released a section of her forthcoming book on the election that's called Hacked, 
appropriately named, which describes how from the start, Clinton and her campaign were allowed to take over from finances and everything else. And in essence, the DNC was assimilated to Clinton's campaign and she took over all the money it raised from the start long before she got the nomination. In other words, looks like the DNC was a Hillary instrument against Bernie throughout the primary. And that declaration came only a few days after an equally devastating bombshell on Clinton and her campaign. And that was that they had paid in part for the research for the dossier that came out during her campaign charging Trump with shenanigans with Putin to swing the election to himself. So I have to just tell the listeners that for Michael Sinato, these headlines are hardly shocking. He's been, since the election, following step by step the party response to its defeat and in particular its refusal to adopt what would seem to be the most obvious tactic to try to win over the enormous constituency that had supported Bernie. But the party did the opposite. It launched an ever more systematic and vicious campaign to destroy all bits of Sanders' strength in the party and essentially to force him out. So with all of that, Michael Sinato, could you give us an overview of the story you've been following? Well, obviously, since the 2016 election loss, when Clinton lost to Trump, the Democratic Party establishment, the wealthy donor class, they've really rallied behind closed doors to ensure that Clinton losing the election wouldn't embolden Bernie Sanders and his progressive supporters, which obviously have a much more enthusiastic and involved grassroots base, to prevent them from taking over the party, essentially. Uh, A week after the election, billionaire donors and George Soros met in a closed-door conference with Nancy Pelosi and other Democratic leaders on how to resist Trump. And in January, on Inauguration Day weekend, David Brock held a retreat with billionaire donors for the Democratic Party on how to move forward behind closed doors. So the elites and the wealthy donors have really doubled down on preventing Bernie Sanders. You know, they prevented him from winning the Democratic primaries. And since the the election, they've prevented him and his supporters from assuming leadership positions and taking over the party. In late November, Obama officials and Democratic Party insiders handpicked Tom Perez to run against Keith Ellison, who at that point, Keith Ellison announced shortly after the election that he was going to run for DNC chair. And right from the get-go, he was the front runner. He was right. assumed to lead, given in December the only opponent who was entertaining uh, to face him was Howard Dean, who didn't have that much support at all. And that I'd his forgotten that part. <laughs> He rescinded his candidacy as soon as Tom Perez announced his. You know, Tom Perez got support from Obama officials. There was a Harper's uh, Magazine article that came out over the summer where uh, Nebraska Democratic Party chair Jane Kleeb, who is a Sanders supporter, she said that she had heard rumors that Iowa delegates were threatened to lose their role as the first state primary if their delegates didn't vote for Perez. Mm. So there were some shady backroom dealings in the DNC chair race. And then when Perez did win, it was a blow to Sanders supporters. And Ellison was really propped up into this deputy chair position that really doesn't (laughs) grant with it much authority. So he's really taken the role as a mascot for the DNC. Since Perez has taken over the DNC, the fundraising has been poor. Small donors don't trust the DNC. Even wealthy donors have been turned off 
by Tom Perez, who really has denied any pushes for unity. They have the Unity Reform Commission, but already that was compromised. There's 21 members of that. Clinton picked seven of them. Perez picked seven of them. And Bernie picked seven of them. So already Tom Perez was a Clinton surrogate. In the Podesta emails, there was one email where he was telling Podesta that they need to stick the knife in Bernie and end his campaign. It was kind of some brutal rhetoric that just revealed kind of where Perez's political sentiments toward Bernie and his supporters were back then. When was this? This leaked from, in the Podesta emails from WikiLeaks, I believe it was during the primaries. Right. Perez went to Nevada to campaign on behalf of Hillary Clinton, and it was, you know, around that time that email was sent. So, okay, keep going. Yeah, this is incredible. (laughs) Well, since Tom Perez took over... He cleaned out the DNC staff, but he appointed former Clinton staffers, and no former Sanders staffers or Sanders representatives were put in DNC positions. The DNC comms director was a former media director for the Clinton campaign. The DNC CEO that Perez appointed was a big Hillary supporter. She used to run Emily's List. And there's a Trump war room in the DNC that's run by a former Clinton staffer with the help of American Bridge and CAP, which were both organizations founded by Clinton operatives. And there's a couple other DNC positions and staff positions that are held by Clinton staffers. And that doesn't even get to the recent DNC appointments. A couple weekends ago, Tom Perez made his nominations for all the DNC at-large members, the executive committee members, the rules and bylaws committee members, and Bernie Sanders supporters were blatantly left off of it. It wasn't even like they had a decent percentage of representation, like 10%. There's only three people who were nominated and appointed into DNC positions who are Bernie representatives out of, I think there's like 100 positions. So that's 3%. So obviously, Bernie Sanders supporters consist of a much greater portion of the Democratic Party support base. Poll after poll has shown he's the most popular politician, but the DNC has pushed against reflecting that in their numbers and it's not just been the dnc you know i live in florida and here was one of the most outrageous examples of how cronyism has taken over the democratic party in january well actually in december 2016 i didn't realize you were in debbie wasserman schultz's state go ahead yes uh, (laughs) i am unfortunately and in december 2016 a billionaire wealthy donor Stephen Battelle, who has a close relationship to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and the DNC delegate, the party delegate positions, the elections happened. And then a week later, Brett Berlin, a committee man who won an election in South Florida, he resigned inexplicably, and it gave Stephen Battelle, who just took over as a precinct captain, to become eligible to run for that position. You know, he ran for that position and won. And there was an email that leaked to Miami New Times that people, that, that Battelle and his allies were aware that Brett Berlin, that committee man, was going to resign so Stephen Battelle could take that position. And then when he took that position, that gave him the opportunity to run for Florida Democratic Party chair. He ran against 
five other people, and those five other people banded together against him to stop him from winning the election. And because of how the Florida Democratic Party is set up, you know, I think Debbie Wasserman Schultz's vote alone outnumbers a lot of the delegates. So Patel won that race. We even had a lawsuit against Patel and the Florida Democratic Party for how he circumvented party rules. I don't think anything happened with that lawsuit, but the chair of the Miami-Dade Black Caucus, Selma, rights activist, she walked on Selma, uh, and she's been in the Miami-Dade uh, party for decades. She was the uh, co-plaintiff in the lawsuit. So progressives don't like Stephen Patel. In June, he accused Black Florida uh, legislators of using the race card, and there was a cause for him to resign then. The Florida Democratic Party is still broke. In Florida, Republicans have a trifecta in the state government. They represent 16 out of 27 congressional seats. Obama won in 2008-2012, and then Hillary lost it, and it really wasn't even close. This is yeah. incredible. Almost like a lawyer's brief against every single thing that went on. But there's one more thing since we're in California that we should mention, and that's the fight for the Democratic Party here in California. And I know you can say something about that, where the DNC communications director, Hinojosa, was a Clinton media director. And go ahead. In California, you have Eric Ballman won the chair race in May under suspicious circumstances. Kimberly Ellis, she supported Clinton, but she was the anti-establishment candidate. She said in previous podcasts that party insiders threatened her from running for chair against Eric Bauman, who was the vice chair and is really the shoe-in to win that race. And he won that race by 62 votes, a party chair race where 3,000 people voted. And Ellis's campaign uh, alleged that there were some ballot stuffing, some delegates who weren't eligible to vote did a recount that the party insiders who Bauman was all friends with found that a few votes were ineligible, but Ellis never got that full independent outside review of the results that she wanted. Let's just go from that to see what's behind this, because what you're saying, it sounds almost suicidal in terms of an opposition party trying to root out the opposition within it so that it appeals to an ever smaller and more right wing base within it where presumably the money is. But what do you think that the effects of this internecine battle, or let's call it a one-sided battle almost, between the DNC against the Sanders forces. What's that going to mean for 2018 and even 2020, in your view? In my view, it's not going to look good. The party leaders now, the Democratic Party establishment, they're really using these tactics instead of embracing activists and grassroots supporters that would strengthen the party. They're really obstructing them from taking leadership positions, and they're really reducing their activism. They're suppressing their voice in the party, and that is just breeding political apathy. Sure. It, that's what these tactics do, and, that, and that's the, the last thing you need. You need to find candidates and leaders that can connect with voters, and when you do have that, you should embrace that instead of pulling these backroom tactics and, and you, you know, exploiting rules uh, within the party and having party leaders really 
do whatever they can to ensure that these grassroots activists don't win inside party elections or gain political power within the party. So they're really doing themselves a disservice. I think Trump and Republicans are so unpopular that there's going to be at least a small wave in terms of Democrats picking up some seats, but the extent of that and whether that's a long-term movement or a short-term movement. You know, I wrote an article earlier this week that when Democrats won big in 2006 and 2008, most of those elected officials that won congressional seats, they aren't in Congress anymore. Many of them lost their seats after their first or second term. I think there were 56 Republican seats taken over in the House and only 15 of those congressional members are still in Congress. And that's a far cry from the incumbency rate. Uh, incumbents win elections anywhere from, you know, 85 to 97 percent was last election. So the story that you're really laying out, Michael Sonato, is is worrying enough. And of course, we know the facts that a thousand Democratic seats were lost during the Obama tenure. And here we are exactly a year after the election. And Hillary Clinton is supposedly someone from the past. And yet she's kind of like a, a zombie candidate there to clinch the midterms for the Republicans. Who knows exactly what the analysis is on their part? And maybe you could say what you think, but the dirt that it's coming out day by day, especially now from Donna Brazil. But there was also the cases of the special elections. I'm from Montana, where no help was given to Rob Quist because he was a Sanders candidate. And that allowed the thug, literally the body slamming thug Gianforte, facing felony counts to win that race. And we see more and more of it. So do you have any idea what their end game is? Do they constantly want to be in opposition? Is that what you see? It's not even opposition. If you have candidates like Rob Quist to uh, embrace grassroots populism, the Democratic Party leadership has no idea how to navigate a populist landscape. Nancy Pelosi has been the House minority leader leading Democrats in Congress for a while. And she just represents how out of touch Democrats are. When Republicans won big in 2010, the Republican national chairman started a fire Pelosi campaign. That was their campaign. They had campaign tour buses, and that was like their big slogan, fire Pelosi. And they used Nancy Pelosi and her unpopularity to help win elections in the same way that Democrats used George Bush in 2006, 2008 to win big there. And they still use Nancy Pelosi, and they still use Hillary Clinton. We are running out of time, and I want to get to your view of what should be done, as they say. And just to say that there is a new document that's come out called Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis, which is a project for the Action for a Progressive Future. I don't know if you've seen it yet, the autopsy, but it it lays all of this out in terms of the crisis and the fight within the party and what should be done. But let's hear your view on what should be done or what could be done. Well, I haven't seen it yet, but in my view, I think Progressives need to band together and organize and coalitions on the left. I think Gail McLaughlin, who was mayor of Richmond out in California, she's running for lieutenant governor now. She helped co-found the Richmond Progressive Alliance and banded together independents, Green Party members and Democrats and took a stand against ExxonMobil out there and took stand on getting money out of politics. I think progressives need to find local candidates running for Congress, 
candidates challenging establishment Democrats in primaries and really get involved and get excited by individual candidates. And I think getting those people in elected offices is really what Bernie Sanders' political revolution was trying to do. And he he found some success in doing that. That is a reason for excitement. You had uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, you had, uh, you know, our revolution back Randall Woodson, who took down an incumbent establishment Democrat there in Jackson, Mississippi. You have elections across the country where this is the case. And that's where it's going to start. You're going to have to have local leaders find success at the local level and then eventually have them come into running for higher offices for congress for senate eventually we need to get those kinds of candidates in there uh you know one of my favorite candidates coming up this election jabari brisport uh he's a green party candidate but he has the support of democratic socialists of america and our revolution and he's i think been one of the most visible local candidates this election in November, I think the solution for progressives is to really find candidates like that. Can you say where he's running? In New York City, in Brooklyn. Okay. Well, we're totally out of time, but this has been really fascinating. And of course, there's a lot more to talk about in terms of the opening that now exists. And I can hear in the excitement in your voice that you don't think that this is, it's an autopsy of the Democratic Party, but it's also a kind of birth for the kind of progressive politics. And the question then, of course, becomes is what vehicles to use? And you've just laid out some pretty interesting ones from Richmond to New York. And I'm sorry, we can't take up more, but we'll do it on another time. But Michael Sinato, thanks so much for being with us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me on, Susie. Thank you. And Michael's articles can be found just about anywhere, but also he tweets in again. Give your hashtag. It's at M-S-A-I-N-A-T-1, M-S-I-N-A-T-1. So if you look up my name, it should pop up on Twitter. Okay. Thanks so much. And I'm Susie Weissman. Don't go away. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Wiseman.